Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to It's Rainmaking Time. This is Kim Greenhouse. I'm so excited today to be talking to my favorite composer and conductor, Joseph Curielli, who is in the Philippines today. He is an American composer who has composed two albums that you would love that you should pick up. One of them is called Awakening. And the other one is called The Music of Life. He came to Los Angeles after living in Japan for a time and has had a very successful career composing music. He has written quite a bit for television, movies, and the recording industry in the early 80s. He also wrote music for The Tonight Show and Steve Martin's film Roxanne. He has performed and written and composed music in Abbey Road Studio in London, England. He is a humanitarian, and he has founded the Joseph Curiel Foundation and has been working to provide girls' orphanages in India to deal with suicides and support when farmers are experiencing a decline in their farms and fields and have left widows holding the bag. And he is an author who has written the book, The Spirit of Creativity. He understands the spirit of creativity. As a composer and a conductor, he has lived it. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome Joseph Curielli to It's Rainmaking Time. Good afternoon. Hi, Kim. Hello from uh, the jungles of the Philippines. Well, what brings you to the jungles of the Philippines, first of all? Well, I, it was not something I planned on because uh, last year I left India um, around the end of February in 2011, pretty much wrapping up humanitarian work that I had done for six years, except for to continue to raise two sisters, uh, orphan girls that, um, that I uh, more or less adopted. I was not allowed to adopt them um, legally, but that's just a technicality. But uh, I ended up uh, in the, on the way out of India and elsewhere, I ended up being right smack in the uh, Japan earthquake and was stuck there for nine days, figuring out how am I going to get out of here, out of there. <laughs> Oh, my God, and, I didn't um, even know that. Friends. Oh, yeah, it was uh, pretty intense. I thought that was the end. I mean, being from California, I, I'm I'm not afraid of earthquakes. I sure have a lot of experiences, but uh, this one, I thought, this is the end. And then after that, then there was the radiation issue, which, you know, you just kind of throw your hands up and just going, you know, there's nothing I can do. And then uh, a friend of mine from Singapore, because I had lived in Singapore and produced records in Singapore as well in the past, he um, contacted me and he says, can you get to the airport and get on a plane? He goes, um, just get to Singapore. We'll figure out, you know, how to put you up and everything like that. So I did manage to get to the airport uh, after nine days and went to Singapore. In Singapore, um, I, I met a lot of very interesting people and uh, I met someone from the Philippines who uh, comes from a very poor background and um, you know was working extremely hard as a servant to um, build a house for her family she's one of nine children and so I um, just got that same intuitive lead that I got when I first went to India just to like help her out so um, I came to the Philippines in near Christmas time and um, built her and her family a house and uh, and setting her up in a little business so that she can um, take care of herself and her family and um, also 
to make her the representative, the Philip now the Philippine representative of the Joseph Curiali Foundation, because in, since I've been in the jungle, you see a lot of little kids walking by and they have nothing, and they're on their way to school and they have hardly any clothes and they don't even have a pencil. So recently, I asked her, "Can you please help me to um, investigate this?" And so she did. And even yesterday, you know, um, she delivered book bags, books, all school supplies, school uniforms, everything to children. Uh, who fit the bill for the foundation, which is helping, you know, women, uh, you know, what I could say, like sole providers and uh, orphan children, that kind of thing. So uh, I didn't, I thought, well, you know, I'm kind of finished with the humanitarian work because I, I sacrificed everything, you know, like gave up my retirement account. You know, I've, I I think at one point in the last six years, I qualified for being poor as, as according to my taxes, what my accountant said. Um, but, <laughs> but no, it is bizarre. I mean, I was in Hollywood and, you know, produced my own records, which cost a quarter of a million dollars. And here I am, you know, only able to eat once a day, you know, many times the past six or seven years. And but it was gratifying to help people. But I, I feel the need, that it's, I, again, following the intuitive lead, it's time to get back to helping people in a larger way through music, through uh, writing, uh, books, etc. So, But it's, it's been a really interesting seven years. Oh, my God. I've lived many lifetimes uh, since I last spoke with you. <laughs> so. You've been all over the place. I really love your music. I am so touched by your music. And when I met you many, many years ago, before I was ever in broadcasting and wanted to interview you, I felt you were on the pulse of something extraordinary in your music, in your composition, in the expansiveness of it. Also, the way your music touches the heart and the international appeal of it. What is a composer? What does a composer do and what does a conductor do? Well, a composer creates music. You know, the truth is I kind of feel the music's already created <laughs> It's just I basically kind of uh, fish it in and um, it's kind of out there in the ether somehow. And w when I'm in a certain kind of a zone, uh, I, for me personally, kind of a spiritual zone, a channel opens up and um, uh, allows me to be open to the music that's already there. And then it's my choice whether... You know, I, I can be lazy and not deal with it, or I can just go, wow, I got to go with this right now. I got to write it down. That's my experience with it. I mean, I have another more cerebral experience, like in Hollywood, where they say, write something by five o'clock, and it needs to be on this TV show. I mean, I still think there's an aspect of, of inspiration involved, but, um, but with the CDs of my own, that was a completely different experience. That was uh, unsolicited by me in a way. It was just aligning my life in a certain way that opened up or seemed to open up a channel for this music to come through. Uh, conductor, well, you know, not all composers are conductors, and I would imagine a lot of orchestra members would say that most composers are probably rotten conductors and they need to get somebody else. Well, um, I certainly don't think I'm a rotten conductor. I think um, I'm very... Uh, expressive and uh, being Italian doesn't hurt. Uh, <laughs> uh, people joke and talk behind our, you know, with, with our hands and, and everything. So, um, I, I'm, I'm there are amazing conductors and I've, I've come across one conductor, uh, of the Redland symphony in, uh, California. He's also, I think the chairman of the music department, 
at a university in Florida. Um, and he conducted Joy, for example, and he was talking to the orchestra. And I never really talked to him about the details. And what he was saying was like, he completely read my mind. So there are conductors who can conduct it well. However, I always feel when I have, you know, been part of the creation of a new work, nobody is going to be able to get closest to the original intention than I am as a conductor, because I'm standing in front of the orchestra. I'm looking in their eyes. I'm, um, I make a lot of eye contact with the orchestra and it's my hands you know the little nuance of the way i move my hands that i probably will never move it again that way at that moment um is what's part of the magic of the music because the the music is only a bunch of dots as ever you know like a a bunch of dots on a paper dots of uh potentiality and intention but they need life breathed into them now, even with the best orchestras, like I've, I've had the good fortune of working with the London Symphony, recording with London Symphony, Royal Philharmonic, Academy of St. Martin in the Fields, among others. But, and they're unbelievable musicians, but they can, the music can be interpreted in so many different ways. And sometimes I, I hate to say it, that some musicians don't even give a damn. You know, for them, it's just a job. You know, for me, I've had to work hard, save a lot of money to, and, you know, take care of every little nuance of the music to make sure that uh, everything is as kind of divinely perfect as possible, because then I have to let go to some degree, and I have to now put it in the hands of the musicians to breathe a life into it. But I'm still the captain of the ship there, you know, with the steering wheel, but I can't do it by myself. So at that point, it really is a, a group effort. And in the recording studio, you know, the I think at this point... Uh, the feedback I've gotten from a lot of uh, disc jockeys, uh, classical radio disc jockeys who have been uh, real heroes and champions for the music, is that there's um, sound associated as well with the music that I've recorded. And that's absolutely true because uh, that's part, the sound of the room, the sound of the reverberation, all of that to me is part of the grander orchestration of the music. It's part of the color. So there's a certain sound as well. So uh, I like to keep keep that sound consistent when possible. So there's uh, so there's like Abbey Road Studio One is where I recorded most of the works. There's a certain sound in there, and uh, the other one I love is Air Lindhurst, which is George Martin's studio, and I recorded Blue Windows there. And it also is this really divine uh, sonic spaces that seem to fit best so far with the music that I've written. How have you found out about those sonic spaces and whether they would be right for you? Did you just know? Did someone tell you? Did you have to go there first and feel it out? You know, oh my God, over the years I've had like thousands and thousands and thousands of records and, uh, you know, I was very in tune to sound. And, and like even if you, if you listen back to records, particularly recordings from the 60s and 70s, like for example, the the theme song to Route 66, for example, that television show, it had a certain kind of uh, reverberation sound, uh, a colored kind of, I'll say echo, but it's not just echo, but it's just the the way the room sounded, that, you know, it takes you, transports me to a certain time and place, and that's Hollywood at that particular time. So not only Hollywood, and it also creates a mood for the, I think, for the TV show as well. Um... And um, so each studio has its own 
sound. Of course, a lot of those studios are going away because everything's becoming digital where you, you can kind of record in your bedroom with a, with a, with a MacBook Pro and a, and a few microphones. You can make some nice, and they have digital re reverbs, which are kind of, uh, um, replications of what the real thing is. And I, I think it makes a difference. The, the, those old studios had what, what were called um, echo chambers. There are actually other rooms or something dig, uh, a room dug underneath the studio where they put a microphone and each one was different. The microphones are different, the, the way it was built. So each studio had a, had a characteristic sound. So that to me really thrilled me. Like I can tell sometimes which recordings were done in New York in the 60s and which recordings were done in L.A., which recordings were done in England, you know, um, just by the sound of, the, of the, the recording. And I love that. I mean, again, that's, the, that's that part of the orchestration that I can't add with a pencil. And, um, but I know that I have access to it. But in the, in the situation with uh, my two recordings, the uh, first one, Awakening, was that I heard a, an album by Gino Vanelli in the 70s called um, um, A Pauper in Paradise. And I love half, that. Oh, my God, I love that album. <laughs> so. And, and so the second half of, you know, remember, side A was more of a studio, straight rock studio record, and side B was with the Royal Philharmonic. First of all, I was a huge Gino Vanelli fan, and I loved Don Sebesky, who... Um, you know, did the orchestration for them, and it was just absolutely unbelievable. My good fortune, now being a huge Gino fan, uh, was a wonderful experience in Hollywood in 1995 when he actually called me and, and said he heard about my work and, you know, would I be interested in producing one of his records with him? And I was like, oh, my God. Oh, my God, which one? Turns out that they take so long to do it that I really couldn't afford to, to stick around. But I did, um, I worked on one, the title track to one of his albums called Inconsolable Man. Oh, yeah. Oh, wow. <laughs> but the most important part was the friendship. From meeting Gino and Joe, I, I personally uh, gravitated toward his brother Joe, which actually he's a, the unsung hero of those records because uh, his, now that I know I've worked with him so often since 1985 and he actually came with me to my, my first recording sessions in London because I knew him well enough that time. And I said, you know, I really want to do this recording session with, and they had done the Royal Philharmonic. And I said, well, you know, the Royal Philharmonic, let me hire them. Let's go to Abbey road one where you did yours. Would you come with me and sit in the booth and, you know, help me? And he said, sure. And he, so um, awakening was done. Uh, he came for the awakening session as well. And um, so it was just like association, besides the sound, the association that he had worked in the room. And these were, he was a musician, like what in Europe, when I mentioned to anybody that I worked with Gino and Joe Vanelli, you know, they, they want to sit near me because they kind of feel, well, those guys are like the musician's musician. And, and they are. They're, they're, they never compromise on anything um, about the sound about the actual perfection of their records. And uh, it, it had a huge influence on me in my earlier days and is more so than ever. So I was very fortunate to have um, Joe come with me. And he not only, you know, helped me during the recording um, and was great moral support for me. And, and it was uh, when we got back, he edited, you know, Gates of Gold and he edited all of them for me. And, uh, wow. uh, we, we mixed them together 
at his studio, Blue Moon, where uh, a lot of Gino's records were done. That was the studio they used to own together. Joe is the owner of it now. It was in the same town that I lived at the time, Agoura Hills, California. And um, so to have a real buddy who I absolutely, one of the people I respect most in the world, not only as a musician, but as a human being, he is an absolute gentleman. And when you're talking about the music industry and pop, it's going to hard come by somebody you can call a gentleman. And um, Joe is a gentleman and he's a, an artist of the highest order. And I kind of feel it's my good fortune, you know. And so we had many late nights, you know, editing and mixing these things. And we're both frazzled and we were both, you know, really in the trenches together. And, and you learn a lot about a person. You know, we take a break. We're talking. We're both Italian. So we're both you know, making fun and laughing at all the goofy things that Italian people do and that we grew up with, although I grew up in Canada and I grew up in the New York area and in Connecticut. So um, that's kind of the experience about choosing the studio for me, and it was uh, perfect. <laughs> Is a conductor also a kind of arranger? The composer, I mean, I don't want to get into definitions, but I do have real strong feelings about this, that uh, a if I want to say a quote-unquote real composer, as, as we think of composers like Beethoven, uh, you know, and Mozart and Ravel and all these other incredible composers, um, they do it all themselves. I mean, their music is arranged themselves, it's orchestrated themselves, and of course the, the melodies and everything are composed by them. It's um, okay. Where it's a different story. Uh, it's not to say that some of the great composers there are not capable of arranging and orchestrating the music themselves, but they usually get very busy, so they hire other people to, um, they'll sketch it. Uh, even John Williams does that. I mean, you know, uh, Star Wars, he didn't orchestrate it as far as I know, I mean, or any of those. I mean, he sketched it. But the word, you get the word from all the people who are on the inside, like myself, and you you learn that, well, his sketches were very, very, very detailed. So it was uh, um, kind of fleshing it out. Um, Earl Hagen, who, you know, wrote the Andy Griffith theme, who, and, you know, Mary Tyler Moore and all that, who, who Dick Van Dyke, who be, my good fortune, again, became a really special friend of mine the last four years of his life, and I spent a lot of time with him. And he's a genius, um, and a lot of people don't know that prior to him writing all those TV themes in the early days of television, he was orchestrating for some of the biggest movies, you know, for Alfred Newman, for Miklos Rocha, for um, all of the greats. And when I would ask him about a certain score that he did, he'd be honest. And, you know, instead of saying, well, you know, I did it all myself. And the, he'd say, oh, no, basically Rocha's score was so complete, the sketch, that it, my job was basically a copy job, you know. So it varies. There's a lot of people in Hollywood now who can't read or write a note of music. I mean, literally. And I, I don't want to mention any names, but these are the people that are that are thought of as the great Hollywood composers of today. They can't read music at all. They basically put stuff in the computer and they hire a really great orchestra who makes their work sound divine. I have a little problem with that, you know, in a way. But um, I mean, and I, I felt vindicated in that feeling when uh, one of my favorite composers, Ennio Morricone, who's a real composer, um, addressed the Society of Composers and Lyricists in Los Angeles, of which I used to be a member, and uh, flat out told them, if you don't, if you're not in the trenches sweating with your orchestra, with the orchestration, you're not a composer. And a friend of mine who attended said a lot of the local composers in Hollywood sunk down in their chairs. But so, <laughs> um, 
you don't have to be able to know music to create beautiful music. That's why when I was in the supermarket and somebody saw my check was, you know, from the musicians union, they say, oh, you're a musician? I'd say, yes, I am. They say, what do you do? I said, well, I, I write music. They said, oh, you know, I write songs too. And I, and I never took an arrogant attitude like, well, haha, yeah, good luck. I, I, I tell them, well, you might have a hit before I do. So just go for it because you don't have to be able to notate it to be able to hear beautiful melodies in your in your mind or to be able to sit at a piano or guitar and you still don't know how to write it but you know how to play it and you know how to sing it so i always leave that door open that you know you don't have to notate music to be able to write good music but then i feel that orchestrators the great orchestrators get cheated because actually they're really co-composers of 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 the works but they get paid a flat rate and goodbye you know so very interesting what an interesting life there's a lot of complexity to it that we, the public, never get a feel for, which you're describing, which we appreciate very much. Yeah, I mean, uh, for example, this just last little bit on, uh, on orchestration, you know, to kind of give a plug to all the great orchestrators in Hollywood uh, who never really get any credit. You know, you look, you look down the credit, so a credit roll of a movie and you find the orchestrator's credit far below the catering truck driver. So, I mean, you know, shows where people, even in the industry, for the most part, don't have a clue that the reason why Star Wars had that impact was because of John Williams' scores. And it had a lot to do with Arthur Morton's, who is a composer, a real composer, who also orchestrated for Jerry Goldsmith. And uh, um, I believe it was Arthur Morton or for Star Wars, or it was um, um, not Jack Hayes, but... Uh, his name was Herbert Spencer. He was Earl Hagen's partner early on when they did the Danny Thomas show, Make Room for Daddy and everything. It said Spencer Hagen or the Spencer Hagen Orchestra. So these are guys, these guys really were composers as well, but sometimes they needed the money or they weren't uh, politically savvy. And so they didn't get the, the composing gig, but, but the, you don't need all the political uh, savvy to necessarily get a job as a as an orchestrator, because all the great composers know who the great orchestrators are. They want them to make their work sound great, you know. So there you go. <laughs> so it sounds like you're also a producer. I mean, it was a natural evolution for me because in my earlier days, I didn't think of myself as a composer. I was really into arranging. I really loved all the great jazz arrangers. And before I went to Hollywood and I was living in Japan the first time, I remember a friend said to me, why are you always arranging everybody else's music? Why don't you just write your own? And I was like, bing, what? Why, why not I? You know, and I, and I actually wrote a, a jazz library while I was in Japan at that time in 79 and 80. And, when, and then I cold turkeyed and went to Hollywood and I had all this music and that's how... I made the rounds playing this music or having this music played and the great studio musicians are going like, wow, you know, who are you? Where are you? What are you why aren't you like doing great things? I said, well, I just got here, you know, and the, those are the studio musicians that wanted to help me get, get really going in Hollywood. Now, my era of Hollywood entering around 1980 uh, and 81, uh, synthesizers were coming in. So therefore, it was the people who the people who were good at arranging as well, you had to wear many hats at that point. So you're not only composing, you're arranging, you're programming the computer programs, etc. And then basically you were the producer. You know, you were doing it from bottom up. So for, for me particularly, it was a natural evolution. And, um, and I know what I want. Uh, however, I, I, I'll, I'll 
step aside from that and say that, uh, you know, in a lot of ways, Joe Vanelli served for me as a kind of associate producer because he's somebody that I, I needed to, I know what I want, but I, there are moments when the, the decisions are so fine that, you know, if I could find somebody, I don't know if I could, it's hard to find somebody as much as I, I admire and respect him to say, well, what do you think? You know, it's my call anyway in the end, but what do you think about this? Should I go with this take or, or, or this take? Um, and, and I'd listen to his opinion and sometimes I'd go with it and sometimes I wouldn't, I'd go with another, another one. But so, um, so there are people like the Beatles, obviously after a while were, were more than capable of producing their own records, but they still had George Martin, you know, because it's somebody kind of, uh, somebody outside of yourself because you can get so caught up in yourself that sometimes you don't, you start losing clarity. Uh, when you're starting to really dive into the music and edit it and uh, mix it, etc., and uh, that's where you know same thing with Billy Joel. I mean, Billy Joel can produce his own records, but he had Phil Ramone for for years, and uh, it works, you know. But a lot of everybody now thinks that they're a producer because they have a you know they think they're an artist and a producer and an arranger and everything because they have a computer. It's not that's not true. What is the role of a producer in music? Well, to help an artist see their vision through, and or their sonic vision in, in this um, case, and uh, to do everything you can to support them, to make them feel comfortable um, to, and safe, actually. Because, you know, produce, the, the relationship between a producer and an artist is a very intimate one. I mean, a producer really, a really good producer really gets inside the psyche and the heart of, of, of the artists and trying to find out where, you know, where that best performance is or how to get that best performance. There are some artists, I mean, since I produced a lot of uh, popular artists as well, that um, you need to handle them very gently. Because, and there are some artists that you almost get to the point of they need you to push them to, the, they almost want to have a fist fight with you. Because you know, if you get them riled up enough, they're gonna get, they're gonna find that emotion, and they're gonna, they're gonna get it out. So you just have to be able to do it before you get belted in the face. You know what I mean? So, Producers are kind of midwife, the way you're describing the role. Is it? That's a wonderful analogy. I mean, energetically. You know, push, 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 push. Well, yeah. <laughs> or sometimes you just put your hand in and help pull the baby. Well, you know? actually, that's true because there's a lot. There are a lot of producers like the Mutt Lang, you know, who produced Def Leppard, and I think he went on to marry one of the big country artists, female country artists, and he actually would go in and sing a lot of the background vocals. He would actually go out and sing the lead vocal and and have the lead singer of the band emulate him. So that that's a good possible analogy for sticking your hand in and pulling the baby out yourself, you know. <laughs> so. There's some there's some producers that aren't really musicians, but they they have incredible music musical instincts, um, and uh, they know a hit record. You know, they just know what whatever that is. You know, they they can hear it. They know what it is, but they've never been schooled, uh, in you know, etc. So a real a good producer is very 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 valuable. Of course, if they're good schmoozers too, I mean that helps. You know, to be able to to go out and, and, you know, champion for the artist and, uh, you know, because it's getting harder and harder, you know, with, there are not any independent labels anymore. You know, everything is all monopolized 
by a couple of companies. So it's um, the, the whole business changed completely. So it's almost like I, I tell artists coming out today, don't compare yourself to the, the opportunities in the, that the artists had in the 60s or the 70s, because it's a completely different story. The whole the whole playing field changed. So now being a producer, being a producer writer is very valuable because now they're not, publishers are no longer interested for the most part of just somebody who's a writer. They want someone who's a singer-songwriter or a producer-songwriter because they don't really want to do the work. They, they want an insurance that they're going to have a better shot at getting a record because the guy or the woman is a producer or the guy or the woman is a singer. It reminds me very much of the publishing houses today. They want not just a writer and an author. They want someone who can run and actually pitch their books and sell books. They want well, someone who's going to promote like crazy. Yeah, they want you to do it all. In fact, on the record side, they even want the artist to put up the money for promotion. It's a riot. I mean, yeah, I mean, so I'm saying, you know, when bands had a quarter of a million and half a million dollar budget for promotion... Now that I don't think that exists, you know, now it's just like you guys all do it yourself. And uh, in, in some ways, the new technology has been very helpful. In some ways, it's been very hurtful. So it's you just have to find a balance. And uh, like everything else in life, balance is important. So but it's a completely I mean, what, look, I had to do my own my own CDs because I wanted them done in a certain way. I was unknown in concert music at that time. Um, nobody was going to invest in me. In fact, even as a known commodity now, they don't even touch me. Even the the, the Awakening CD was a, a huge hit. I mean, record companies couldn't get, you know, they dream of having being programmed regularly on um, NPR and everything. I the music from those two CDs has been for the past, you know, 14 or 15 years. I'm going, you don't have to do anything. You know, I had my lawyer, who's a very important uh, music attorney in Los Angeles, pitched them to record companies. Everybody turned it down. So I kind of think of what a friend of mine said, you know, a gospel singer in LA, you know, rejection is protection. It's great. I, I control my own, I own everything and uh, I can do it the way I want. I didn't have to compromise for any kind of a, slimy marketing, you know, gimmick. And, uh, but I think all of that, you know, putting everything into it, heart, soul, financially, everything, um, that also plays into the beauty of the final product. Absolutely. The other thing about what you're doing, which I really love, is that you have timeless works. When something's a hit, it's timeless. I believe a lot of the great hits are timeless. There is continuing potential for revenue-producing annuity in that timeless hit and keeping it in front of people. In publishing, they'll say, well, if you had a book that came out a few years ago, it's really not worth as much anymore. Not true. Not true. The whole paradigm needs to shift about publishing of any kind. Once you have a hit, something that's timeless like that, it can continue to go. And really what you did is you self-published in the music industry. You took it from soup to nuts, all the way through from concept through full delivery. How did you raise the money to do it or did you save the money to do it? No, I had no investors. I basically unloaded my bank account. And every time I got, I, I, I worked and uh, I put the money towards uh, saving for another recording session and did it like that. I mean, I think uh, the Music of Life CD took me about, Ah, uh, maybe uh, six, five, maybe five or six years to 
complete in that way. But I was still, I still had my finger in Hollywood, so I was making the kind of money as a, as a composer and as an orchestrator for one particular person that uh, uh, allowed me to have the money to do things the way that I wanted. Uh, once I left Hollywood, then it became really difficult uh, to to have the money, uh, anything more than just surviving. And then when I became a humanitarian, you know, I, I kind of financially became poor, you know, but um, poverty is not something that uh, is necessary for me. I did it um, to help other people, but uh, I'm now on the road to getting back to my to myself and um, and trying to save the money um, little by little, starting, you know, mid year this year to uh, go back and start recording again. The music, um, I, it, I'd say 75% of a, of a third CD is already written. And, um, and there are, uh, I think, a, a few more in the ether there that I need to reel in and then um, start recording again. But uh, I, yeah, I, and I paid everybody straight up what they were supposed to be paid. You know, I have so many friends in Hollywood, obviously, you know, musicians, some of the best in the world that, you know, I did them a lot of favors by hiring them over the years. They, If I needed help, they would have done it for free. I said, no, that's not, I, I got to keep my karma clean on this. And I think uh, you deserve it. You've worked hard. You're worth this X amount of dollars. Let me work and raise it myself and I will pay you. And so I never ask anybody for favors. And uh, and I think that, again, with that spirit is infused in the recording. You know, it's all good karma. It's all very positive. And I think that is part of the the life that in in that music and uh, and in those I'll say copyrights because I own the music uh, and you're right I mean those copyrights are becoming more and more valuable. Um, I never did any of this with an intention of making money. I just said before I die, I, I want to do what I want to do in Hollywood. I've had a lot of chances to work on wonderful projects, but it's basically you're, you're a blue collar musician and you're doing something you know, digging a ditch for a producer, you know, and you don't, you can give a little bit of your opinion here and there, but basically they want it this way, they want it that way. And usually it's not for the right reasons. It's just like uh, all geared towards, um, you know, uh, money. And there's nothing wrong with money, but I'm saying, but sometimes it's just, it's a lot of fear. You believe it or not, there's a lot of fear-based stuff in Hollywood. You know, let's do it the same or the, this person had a hit. Let's write 10 more songs exactly like that instead of like, well, you know, write what you want to write. So um, uh, the, the the copyrights are becoming valuable because, again, I think the whole spirit of it was uh, very pure and uh, something beyond myself, definitely beyond my intellect, because uh, I always feel I need to keep my intellect out of the way and let the that uh, pure creative spirit come through. Let's talk about the book that you wrote, The Spirit of Creativity, I want to know why you wrote it, and also, do you feel that it is getting out to the number of people you want it to get out to? Well, certainly not getting out to the number of people because, as you said, I had to self-publish it, and I wanted to do it the way I wanted to do it. And uh, and by the time that I released those, the spirit of creativity and the companion book, uh, the wisdom of creativity, uh, it's around the time when I discovered what was in store for me in, in the world of humanitarianism. And so any funds that could have been put towards promoting 
the book in a bigger way fell by the wayside because, you know, all, every cent that I got from that point, it was, was uh, directed towards saving lives, literally. And, um, and, and that gave me such a great sense of accomplishment and satisfaction that uh, became almost an addiction to uh, helping certain people that I had been kind of connected with in India in particular to, you know, saving their lives. Um, I always had the feeling that I'd get back to it, but, um, but that's, so it's, you know, and then recently I, I did the, the electronic version of the um, spirit of creativity and then put that up on iTunes and other, um, you know, I think Barnes and Noble, et cetera, et cetera. So, you know, it has its, has its way of getting around. And sometimes I'm really surprised, you know, in nine, in 2008, I went in the middle of, you know, flying back and forth to India. I went back to get my master's degree at the University of Nebraska. And I taught there. I remember, you know, sitting in a class, you know, with undergraduates and which was, you know, it was like unbelievable to be in that position. If we want to talk about having humility and, um, we had to go around the room and introduce ourselves to students. And I said, you know, Joseph Curiali. And one student, you know, like looked like up. After the class, I was in the men's room and he was in the men's room. And he goes, you know, I bought your book and I have your CDs. <laughs> the book really helped me a lot. And it's like, I can't believe like you're, you're a student in my class. You know, so. <laughs> it's great. I noticed you write a lot about many, many things about life. There was like a meta theme all throughout the book having to do with learning as you go, being willing to get quiet, utilizing self-reflection and introspection. A very big thing that you write about is the confusion of ego and self-esteem. And I thought you could make that distinction for us here on the show. Well, I'm glad you brought that up because, for example, when I taught the history of rock and roll, which is one of my real passions uh, at the University of Nebraska, my approach to it, and it was very natural, it's not like some kind of cerebral approach to it, was that to that class could be used, the examples of a lot of the people who have succeeded in rock and roll who came from nothing, as a, a class for self-esteem, uh, for, um, you know, just self-betterment, uh, et cetera. And that was my approach. And at the end of the semester, I, or even during the, the course of the semester, I get so many emails from students saying, wow, you know, you made me feel so much better about myself and et cetera. And um, so, yeah, we grew up, I, I grew up anyway. You know, you, you hear that real right brain, you know, kind of American trash, you know, like, if you want to succeed in anything, you got to have a good ego, you have to have a strong ego. And, you know, I, I, because I didn't, at the earlier age, I didn't have anything, you know, to compare that to. Um, but when, you know, I started going through my own spiritual awakening, I realized that's not correct. You have to have good self-esteem to do well, um, not an ego. In fact, according to Eastern philosophy, you have to destroy your ego because ego will be the, the, the uh, barrier to you really doing great things and to evolving as a human being. So, um, but we have to look honestly at ourselves too and, and saying, well, where, where do we fit on the self-esteem and have we, wh what are the things we've done in our lives or we are doing currently um, to warrant strong self-esteem, you know, that kind of thing. But uh, I always take a very positive approach to it. And that's why it's like done covertly. But again, it's not so done intentionally, but it is covert. 
that I could use any class that I teach in any subject and I can gear it. I can find a way to gear it towards um, helping people to find themselves and to find their strength and to not be afraid because, you know, the media, you know, kind of creates a lot of things that, you know, these great achievements are only for these special people, as I put in the book, that are touched by the hand right, of God. Very all, astute. I appreciate that. Say more about it. We're all touched by the hand of God. We're all part of this holographic creation. We're all part of God. And, um, you know, some people are more fortunate. That's, you know, I'll have to just bring in some of my own philosophy. We don't know where karma and past lives might play a role in in where we stand in this particular life, if that's if people believe it. But that aside, you know, what are what are we doing to create a a good karma bank account? You know what I mean? Kind of. If you, if you're people are afraid of the word karma, you can say you know you reap what you sow. It's, it just seems to be a um, a law of the universe. If you want to take out religion from it completely or any dogma, it it just seems to be that's the way it is. And, uh, but people say, well, other people get ahead, bad people get ahead in life. I'm going, well, this, this life is a very short run, by the way. And you have to be detached from the outcome. Um, you know, I mean, I can say the same thing that maybe there's a lot of garbage that, you know, is being recorded and people are able to find the money to do it and they're getting supportive record companies. I'm going, well, God bless them. You know, when, when it's my time, I will be able to touch people in other ways. And I have been through music. I have been as a, as a teacher and I uh, have been sitting in the jungle, uh, you know, um, buying a pen and a pencil for a little kid that, uh, you know, slopping around through the monsoon mud and uh, has never had a, the proper clothes to go to school. You know what I mean? So there's a lot of ways to, um, to do good works. And we don't know. Again, we have to be detached from the outcome. Most important thing is, do the right thing. I guess, you know, that Spike Lee movie, <laughs> the, the, the title, Do the Right Thing. That's all we need to be concerned is do the right thing and let go of the, um, of the end result. And I, I, I personally believe that good things will come. I mean, you know, the past seven years, sometimes I would, you know, feel like I'm losing heart in moments, just going, my God, I'm, I've, I've sacrificed everything for these, pe- for these people and they're crucifying me. I mean, almost literally, I've been kidnapped twice. I mean, I've been held hostage. I've received death threats. I'm going, you want to make your head spin? What? For helping? <laughs> you know? But I'm going, you're doing the right, I'm doing the right thing. The other stuff is on them. <laughs> you know, they'll have to deal with that. So just do the right thing. You're going to go back and teach at the University of Minnesota in August, right? Correct. Yeah, and and uh, complete, hopefully, complete the PhD. Um, uh, I, you know, I'm, I'm fortunate. I mean, I've had to work hard. I don't come from a rich family or anything, anything like that. You know, I haven't worked hard all, all my life, but I think my passion has gotten me very, very, very far. And I feel anything I've ever dreamed of doing, I've end up dream, I've end up doing it in the highest order. And I kind of feel the same with education. So after after 33 years or something, I went back and got my master's, and I had a, a, a 4.0 while I was teaching and also flying back and forth to India. I'd like to see how many people could could bear it. It was really difficult, and um, 
And so I kind of feel in education, if PhD is considered the pinnacle, and it's not for ego purposes, is because even with a person of my experience, I cannot get a job teaching and sharing all I know without a PhD in, 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 uh, in an educational institution. You've got to be they, kidding. No, I save all the rejection letters. I mean, they're, they, a lot of them, they're all part of my journal, you know, being turned down by absolutely everybody. I mean, the, the stir that was created at University of Nebraska by the students saying that this was not only the best class in, in music, it was the best class they had in four years of any class in the university. And I would go to the head of the department and say, you know, you mean to tell me that you won't hire, if, the, if there's a job opening and, you, you know, you wouldn't hire me? And he said, no, because you don't have a PhD. <laughs> Their hands are tied as well. You know, it's become I mean, schools, corporate corporatization of education as well. Absolutely. So I think I think it's complete. If you want to talk about being idiotic, this is supposed to be a place of higher learning. That's about as idiotic as possible. I'm going to say, well, then you would have had to turn down Mozart and you would have had to turn down a lot of really great people because they didn't have those kind of, uh, as far as I know, uh, educational credentials. It reminds me of peer review. A lot of people think that peer review is this great thing and it keeps out all the bad stuff and it's a great filtering mechanism. What they don't know is that you don't even get to know who is reviewing you and rejecting you based on whether they agree with what you're putting forth. Not just if they like it, if they agree with it. So it reminds me of putting like a false barrier in an educational system and it's basically arbitrary. It's just a mechanism to be more ingrained and enmeshed in the system. It has nothing to do with creativity. It has nothing to do with competency at all. It's interesting, isn't it? Well, it's interesting, depending on your situation, it can be very depressing as well. I mean, last year I was, I was rejected by seven universities to go back to school. And, you know, I, what, there's a, a Pulitzer Prize winning poet, and he was also a poet laureate of America, who was a very close friend. I will leave his name blank at the moment. But he told me he's been on in, in committees like this. He said, they're totally, the people who, in the departments usually are totally afraid of having somebody like you around. They're afraid you're going to take their job. That's not my, I don't do that. You know, I wouldn't do that. I, I think I'm the best colleague anybody could ever have, you know, supportive. Here I am a person, you know, again, with my experience and my place in American music, you know, being the assistant to somebody correcting papers. I'm going, you know something? There's a biblical, I believe, um, scripture that says, let your yes be yes and your no be no. I said, yes, you have my 100 percent. If, if I have to correct papers, that's part of my responsibility as a graduate teaching assistant. You got it. You got 200% of my, you know, of my willingness and, and, and everything. You know, that's the way I am. But a lot of people, again, so many people are just fear-based. And um, fortunately, at University of Minnesota, I was very blessed, you know, to find uh, the composition professor there, one who's, who's the champion, you know, for me. And uh, again, I learned this anyway, Hollywood and before that you could be the most talented, wonderful, fantastic person in the world. If you don't have a champion, you're, you ain't getting anywhere. You know what I mean? You have to have somebody believe every time I've made a leap in Hollywood or in concert music or now in academia, it always was somebody who believed in me and said, I will be willing to, you know, stick my neck out in your behalf. 
And, and that's why I like to be a champion for other people. Of course, I'm a, champ, a champion for the people that nobody wants. You, nobody, nobody cares about, nobody loves, you know, the underdog. I'm a big champion for the underdog. So it's nice once in a while when, you know, people are champions for me as well, because um, that's the only way I can kind of break through, I think, you know, get, get to the next level. It's really interesting hearing you share about what you've been through. I interviewed Richard Bach, as you know, who wrote Jonathan Livingston sure. Siegel, and he was sharing and laughing, actually. Of course, years later, he can laugh, and we both laughed because of the way he told the story. But he was homeless. He was rejected everywhere for years with that one book. And then his breakthrough came. I went seven years where I could not find work. Literally, I would consult and then apply all over to try to fit into the system. And I never fit. One day, this is when Bill Clinton got out of office. I wrote a letter to him, put my background bio, found out where his office was, sent it certified. And a few months later, after my father passed away, I got a letter from his chief of staff letting me know that he totally read the letter, how much he appreciated it, more than I know. And at this particular time, they didn't have a place for me, but they would hold what I had. The point is they read it. They got it. I got to an ex-president of the United States. Now, you would think, okay, that if someone could find someone like that, figure out how to get them to read the letter, that that person is hireable, okay? There's some skill base that is extremely important. Not at all. I was homeless when I wrote it, and I was homeless when I received the reply. Seven years of being told I didn't fit in. People said, oh, you just don't want to work hard enough. Okay, so I applied for local jobs. I applied for national jobs. I applied for state jobs. I applied for jobs in multiple fields because I have a lot of different experience. Turn down, turn down, turn down, turn down, turn down. Once I got this letter back, from Bill Clinton's office, I had an epiphany and I said, what am I worried about? Who is receiving me? What level am I worried about? Who am I trying to get in with? Seriously, why am I banging on these doors? What am I really chasing? And I stopped. I went back to my company and started to do business. And I set up the rainmaking company to be a whole systems approach, a manifestation agency, so that I could raise hundreds of millions of dollars for children, medical assistance, technology, feeding people, housing people, to be involved in bringing critical path solutions to the marketplace and getting them funded, and to not have one venture capitalist be able to stop me based on illegitimate criteria, like an institution needing you to have a PhD in order to be an effective, great, inspirational teacher that has critical path communication and experience to deliver to students. I got over it. I got over chasing venture capital. I got over trying to work for other people. I got over trying to fit in. I got over it. And I'll tell you, it's a very, very different life. I relate to what you're going through. Believe me, I do. Well, it it sounds like your situation was another example of rejection as protection because you ended up going in a a different route. Again, it's not pleasant when you're receiving all those rejections. And um, if you want to talk about trying to keep your self-esteem up, which you probably know, and and even my mind's pretty healthy, but still, 
after a while, it kind of makes you feel bonkers when, you know, I, I mean, I, w I was turned down, you know, by everybody. I mean, last year I was in Japan within 12 hours of getting rejected from an international school because they said I'm overqualified. You know, I, I, that's my other thing. I always get, you're overqualified. Over, I go, wouldn't you rather have somebody who's overqualified for the money you're paying? I'm not, you don't have to, you know what I mean? It's just, oh, it's complete nonsense. But again, it's the corporatization of, of education. And it's like one of the biggest problems where, why the U.S. is just completely tanking. And, and it seems to be on a absolute, you know, course for destruction because it's just part and parcel of, 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 of a, it's endemic in the system. Absolutely. That, uh, Absolutely. The criteria for everything is the dragon guarding the gate, not only of new thought, but of everything. Aligned. You have to be aligned with their agenda. So you basically, you have to be mindless. And I'm certainly not like that. I can't live that way. You know what I mean? I'm a, I'm a team player, you know, and I'm the, I think the best uh, colleague anybody could ever have, but uh, I don't help anybody by being a yes man. But um, but that's what that's what it seems to take these days. And uh, but, you know, we find our way. And, you know, um, like I said, seven rejections last year, uh, which that those rejections led me in right smack into the middle of the earthquake and um, just going, well, how, how can this possibly be? You know what I mean? You know, how how could how can I be rejected by seven universities? You know what I mean? But but I know it. I know what the score is. I know I know the reasons. But again, you keep trying, you keep trying, keep trying. You find that one jewel, that one person that goes, "Wow, this is a great opportunity for the university." You know, Joseph, it's rainmaking time. Was rejected by so many networks across America that you can't even believe. I had people, literally head of networks, tell me we are not interested in a show about discovery or solutions or new knowledge or ancient knowledge. We are simply not interested. I interviewed Dr. Muhammad Yunus, the founder of the Grameen Bank, in 2003. Now get this, I was not even on the air. He literally gave me his home phone number, did an hour interview with me, and I said, I'm gonna take this to NPR. NPR submitted a contract to me that was a disaster. One word I crossed out. I signed it. I crossed out one word. And that one word basically said, you cannot walk away with this. And sent it to them, sent the Muhammad Yunus interview. And I got back everything in the mail. And they said, you cannot sign the contract and cross out even one word. And the word I crossed out was same. It basically meant they could do the exact same show in-house, never talk to me again, take everything, and never have to speak to me again. And I said, no, you can't do that. Well, good. <laughs> Absolutely you know, where, where, not. Where's justice in that? I mean, it's like we, we have like an injustice system happening. It's incredible. Every network that I spoke with, every single network had contracts that were so parasitic, so inappropriate that a moron would have to sign them. I don't know who is signing these contracts at these networks, but they're desperate people that think that no one's ever going to listen to them. And that was not me. I told NPR, I know what I have and you're not getting it this way. I'm not aligned with the way you do business. This contract is a disaster. And I left. But I will tell you, I interview people for fun and passion, kind of like you do your music. It's rainmaking time is not what I do for a living. It's what I do for total love and passion. And if I feel anybody in the world in any profession has a very important message, some type of unique contribution and application, 
I will make myself available to do an interview. And the interview is not about me. It's about them. I only come in when I'm called to come in. So I'm not really a typical radio host. I'm a communications steward. And I've been on a mission for 25 years. So who's actually here is someone who's a steward, a rainmaking steward, who's listening for the fulfillment of things. And that gets expressed through the show. But I want to tell you that I totally relate to the level of rejection. I'm so used to it. It's unbelievable. And that even includes today. If I find that somebody comes, they call the rainmaking company to do a certain kind of business. And I know and I have the guidance that I'm supposed to provide something else, that that's what I will provide. I'm not just their hired gun for whatever they want. I operate as a kind of midwife for creative works, for projects, for businesses, and for receptive people who are looking for feedback of another kind, unorthodox feedback, to make sure that what they are trying to accomplish gets done. That's all I listen for, including when it comes to packaging, raising money, creating money, creating new vehicles, totally different ways of doing business, etc. It's rainmaking time is really the calling card that the spirit and the heart has to be in everything. If it's not there for me, if I don't care what I'm facilitating, I won't be involved in it. And neither will my company, period. That's it. And I'm clear, not only is there enough water to make sure people are not thirsty all across the world, which I'm a thousand percent clear about, there's enough food, there's enough seeds, and I don't mean GMO seeds, there's enough of really everything. I interviewed a guy last week, George Swanson, who builds buildings with living, breathing materials that last thousands of years, not 20 years, thousands of years that are healthy and vibrant buildings. So exciting. This is the kind of stuff that I am alive for today. There is not one child that should have to be worried about being clothed, fed, and sheltered and having fresh water. There's nobody. There's no reason for it. It's simply political will that's not there. There is some force that is being fed to not take care of the people around the world and the children around the world that are left adrift, left for not, left for dead. And I think it's so incredible of you to have put your money, put seven years, put your life on the line to go into the trenches and actually deliver on behalf of people who have no voice, have no representation and are forgotten people. It's very important. There's so much money available. I don't care. I know that people are saying all over the world and the media is all writing how broke everybody is and how there's no money everywhere. That's nonsense. But it's not true. It's simply not true. Poverty is, I mean, again, because I was in the trenches, I wasn't sitting in some office. You know what I mean? I mean, I was, I mean, literally in the villages. And I, I see that in a way what I'm trying to do to some degree is futile. Because the systems, the governments and the general systems are actually geared to keeping people in poverty. They're not helping. Anytime you see a big government, in my opinion, just saying that they're doing something to help, you know that they're doing something to hurt them and to make it look like they're helping. They're, they're not doing anything. And so many relief organizations are a scam. I mean, I learned that from being right there in the middle of it. And so at some point I just go, I'm not going to do any of that kind of stuff. I'm going to take a few, whatever I can do and take some kids by the hand and I'm going to raise them and I'm going to put them in school. And I'm going to close them. I'm going to be their dad. 
and uh, you know, and and that's it as much as I can because the system is working against them. There's a war on poverty is is a, is a complete nonsense. It's a lie. Well, actually, most of what goes on in our in our in our lives is a lie. I mean, now and that I know what I know, what I learned in history in school, that's all a lie. I mean, this is a complete sham. You know, so but. I mean, it's going to have to play itself out. I mean, it can't continue. You know what I mean? I, I don't, I'm not any kind of an activist or anything like that. I just do, just keep doing the best that I can, but I, I try to be as educated as I, as I can about reality because you can get really hurt out there and very, very, very disillusioned and disappointed. Um, but a, a one person can make a difference in, in some ways to some people. And that's, you know, what I'm, what I'm trying my best to do. I'm very inspired listening to you. I was inspired reading your book. I'm so moved listening to your music. You know, I found you many years ago, <laughs> many, many years ago, and you're really a jewel into this world. I appreciate you coming on the show. You're more than welcome to come back anytime you want, wherever you are, to talk about the things that are dearest to your heart. And I just love and respect you. Thank you so much for being with us, Joseph. Well, thank you for inviting me, Kim. I really appreciate it. it was, I enjoyed it myself. Yeah. Thanks. And next time you see the kids, will you tell them it's rainmaking time? Okay. <laughs> kids start laughing and smiling when I tell them that. Yeah, I would imagine so. <laughs> yeah.